0: The Art Curious podcast is sponsored by Anchorlight. For more information about all of Anchorlight's artistic and creative endeavors, please visit anchorlightraleigh.com. We are all photographers today. Practically everyone you know has a smartphone, and with that phone access comes a pretty nice quality camera. And with the simple click of a button and the addition of a little filter here and a little crop there, we are all artists. Or at least we have the ability to be artists. It's so funny to think that less than two decades ago, I was schlepping around carrying dozens, dozens of rolls of film on particularly picturesque vacations, just to be sure that I had enough to cover me should the urge to capture a moment strike. It took up so much room in my carry-ons, you guys. And that's not even including the camera itself and its sundry accessories. Photography of a certain quality is easy today. And it's easy to take for granted. It's pretty mind-blowing though, to think of the birth of photography, of the many scientific advances that led to the development of a medium wherein we could freeze a moment of time onto a silvered plate or a plate of glass and finally onto paper. It's further fascinating to think of the moment where a photographer was able to make that next step and to make those moments move again, unfreezing time and allowing for a scene to be recorded and played back again and again. This was an incredible moment in art history really, in, in human history, and the man who was claimed as the father of the motion picture, and thus film as we know it, is an important one, one of the biggies. But it's entirely possible that this big-name artist and inventor may very well have become a mere blip in our art history books, never to reach his soaring heights, if he wasn't acquitted of a murder charge. Some people think that visual art is dry, boring, lifeless. But the stories behind those paintings, sculptures, drawings, and photographs are weirder, crazier, or more fun than you can imagine. In Season 6, we are uncovering the dastardly deeds of several of Art History's famed artists, including their involvement or participation in Murder Most Foul. In today's episode, it's the ascent of Edward Muybridge, photographic pioneer and progenitor of the motion picture, and how a murder trial nearly derailed his historic career. This is the Art Curious Podcast, exploring the unexpected, the slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful in art history. I'm Jennifer Dassel. Edward Moybridge was born in 1830 in the town of Kingston-upon-Thames, England, which is now part of the greater metropolitan area of London. His given name was Edward James Muggeridge, but the idiosyncratic artist later adopted a new spelling of his first name, moving from the traditional one, E-D-W-A-R-D, to the Old English form, spelled E-A-D-W-E-A-R-D. He later adopted the surname of Moybridge, because, in his mind, it was equally old-fashioned. And to be honest, he probably just thought it sounded way cooler than Muggeridge. It is one of the many examples through his life that showed that Moybridge would do his own thing, not kowtowing to tradition or assumptions. The Muggeridge family, both Edward's nuclear and extended family, were merchants, trading in coal, corn, and grain. But Edward wasn't interested in sticking close to home and carrying on the family business. If he was to be a merchant, he would do it elsewhere and do it on his own terms. At age 20, he thus relocated to New York City, where he landed a job with the London Publishing and Printing Company, fittingly, as a publisher's agent. But even more adventure was beckoning the young Englishman, and he kept hearing incredible tales of fortunes that could be made in California, that golden state, which was still such a beacon to dreamers everywhere thanks to the boon of the 1849 gold rush. So just a couple of years after landing in New York, Moybridge moved to San Francisco, For someone involved in publishing, the city by the bay was a great place to be. According to Moybridge biographer Rebecca Solnit, San Francisco, by the early 1850s, was teeming with bookstores, as well as nearly 100 hotels catering to people who came from all over the world to try their hand at striking gold. Moybridge, with a keen sense for business, immediately became a bookseller with a particular penchant for antiquarian tomes. By 1860, he had achieved a high level of success and was in need of more product to sell at his shop. So after leaving his store in the care of his brother, he boarded a stagecoach bound for St. Louis, where he hoped to board a train to New York before taking further passage on a ship bound for London to procure new books. What was supposed to be a long and probably fairly boring journey would end up being a significant moment in his life and one that some say could be read as foreshadowing. If not an outright inspiration for Moybridge's ultimate history making career. While en route to St. Louis, Moybridge's stagecoach crashed spectacularly when its brakes failed, injuring every person aboard and killing one person. Moybridge himself was thrown from the coach and landed, hitting his head on a rock and causing him to fall into a coma, in which he remained for one week. While comatose, the bookseller was sent to Fort Smith, Arkansas for treatment. And when he awoke there, he experienced a variety of symptoms. Confused thinking, an impaired sense of taste and smell, and, most crucially, double vision, which worsened over time. Eventually he was transferred to New York City for further health care, and finally, a year later, he was sufficiently healed enough to undertake his long-delayed trip back to England. But that experience with double vision had greatly affected him so much so that some have claimed it as a premonition of the work that would later make him world-famous, his photographic motion studies. The associated head injury, it has been further speculated by a neurologist from the University of California, Berkeley, may also explain Moybridge's increasingly erratic and emotional behavior, thus possibly even inspiring another crucial period in Moybridge's biography. But we'll get to that shortly. While in London on his book buying excursion, which morphed into a five year stay, Moybridge was under the care of a doctor named Sir William Gull, a famed physician whose clients also included Queen Victoria. Scant records exist to document the goings on of this period in Moybridge's life, except that he took out patents for a couple of inventions, one of which was for, quote, an improved method of and apparatus for plate printing, unquote which may have been originally inspired by his work in the book publishing business, but also may reflect a burgeoning new interest—photography. Some have even suggested that it was Dr. Gull who introduced Moybridge to photography and may have even influenced his career change. By the time that Moybridge returned to the United States in 1867, he was no longer a book merchant and publisher, but marketed himself instead as a photographer. And his fame grew quickly. Moybridge established himself as an artist with a keen eye and technical chops. And though he also offered portrait services, he was especially good at shooting images of landscapes. Though, to be fair, he would sometimes tweak his composition in order to achieve the most dramatic effect, even going so far as cutting down trees if he felt that they were spoiling his ideal view. Also, side note, this stuff still happens. I once had an artist ask me if I could relocate a tree for an outdoor sculpture project. So, yeah, they think like this. After a landmark shoot where he captured the wild grandeur of the Yosemite Valley, he was a superstar, receiving commissions from all over, including the U.S. government, the San Francisco Mint, the U.S. Army and many others. And it was in the midst of this rise that the former governor of California, the famed Leland Stanford, contacted him with a particular request. Okay, do you all remember the Yanni-Laurel debates of a few years back, or the furor over the dress and whether it was white or gold or black and blue? Well, in 1872, they had their own version of such a popular, strange debate that inspired impassioned opinions from many. The question? Whether or not all four feet of a horse were at any point off the ground at the same time while a horse was mid-trot or gallop. I know, really intriguing stuff, right? Well, it was to Leland Stanford, who adamantly felt that yes, at certain points during mid-gallop, all four hooves must be off the ground. Our human eyes, though, could not perceive this motion, especially in an animal as speedy as a thoroughbred horse. So he hired Edward Moybridge to settle the score. Why Moybridge, you might ask, when San Francisco was teeming with many other talented photographers, including Carlton Watkins, Isaiah Tabor, and others. The answer was strangely simple. That very year, Moybridge had began experimenting with an arrangement of a series of cameras, attempting to trigger them one by one in order to capture a sensation of movement. Take a person walking down the street, for example. That first shot might record a person with their left foot sticking out in the front, and the next could present the action of picking up the right foot from the back in order to bring it forward. It seems so simple to us now. But remember, this was the 1870s. Photography was still new, and being able to take multiple shots required multiple cameras. So Moybridge applied this new experimental setup to Leland Stanford's challenge and spent much of 1872 attempting to perfect his methods, especially in relation to a lightning quick shutter speed. But he also approached 1872 with another all-consuming obsession, one that would eventually lead to the end of a man's life. That's coming up next, right after this break stay with us. Many of us think that we just don't have the time to pick up a new topic or a new hobby, but we actually do with the help of The Great Courses Plus. This educational streaming service makes learning so easy and super accessible. There are thousands of lectures on practically any topic that you can think of with objective, in-depth information that's given to us by some of the best teachers in the world. And, you don't have to make time to learn, because The Great Courses Plus fits into your schedule anytime and anywhere. You can watch videos on your lunch break or at the gym, or you can just listen to the audio while you're driving or doing any of your other hobbies. I have been loving the course called Dutch Masters, The Age of Rembrandt. Rembrandt is already one of my favorite artists, and I love this time period. But this course also looks at other artists like Vermeer, Frans Hals, Jan Steen, Peter de Hoek, and so many others, so that you get this well-rounded picture of the inspiration and the evaluation of Dutch paintings from this really incredible time period. So make learning a part of your routine today with The Great Courses Plus. I've arranged for my listeners to get a free trial of unlimited access to the entire Great Courses Plus library so that you can check out anything from European art to French language to a cultural history of food and everything in between. So sign up now through my special URL to start your free trial. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash art. Remember, that is thegreatcoursesplus.com slash art. Away creates thoughtful products built for the way modern travelers see the world. They started with the perfect suitcase, and now they offer a range of essentials, all of which will make your travels more seamless. Whoever said it was all about the journey has never traveled during the holidays, But Away's products are designed to work and fit together, making travel smoother for the holidays and beyond. Now, everybody has a unique travel style, which is why Away offers a range of suitcases made of different materials, like polycarbonate, aluminum, and durable nylon, and also offers a variety of colors and two different carry-on sizes. So for whoever you are and whatever you need to pack, from gifts, comfy clothes, holiday treats, Away has luggage that works for how you travel. I really love that every suitcase comes with an interior organizational system that includes a built-in compression pad to help you pack more in, and a hidden and removable laundry bag that separates your dirty clothes, or in my case, an unwrapped present that you don't want discovered by curious little people. All of Away's suitcases are thoughtfully designed to last a lifetime, with durable exteriors that can withstand even the roughest of baggage handlers, and a TSA-approved combination lock that keeps your belongings safe. Plus, if any part of your suitcase breaks, Away's stand-out customer service will arrange to have fixed or replaced. And with a 100-day free trial on everything and free shipping and returns in the contiguous US, Europe, Canada, and Australia, you've got nothing to lose. So traveling during the holidays is crazy, but getting Away can make every trip a lot more seamless. Visit awaytravel.com slash artcurious to learn more, and if you're in the U.S., EU, Canada, or the U.K., or Australia, order by 11.59 p.m. on December 15th for free ground shipping with guaranteed free delivery by December 20th. For additional last-minute holiday details, please check out their website, awaytravel.com slash artcurious. That's awaytravel.com artcurious to order by 11.59 p.m. on December 15th for free ground shipping with guaranteed free delivery by December 20th. Welcome back to Art Curious. Edward Moybridge was working intently and seriously on his project for Leland Stanford, aiming to settle the argument once and for all whether or not all four feet of a horse were at any point off the ground at the same time while the horse was mid-trot or gallop. And with his new experiments in stop-motion, ultra-quick photography sequences, it seemed like no man was better suited to answer this question than Moybridge. His initial early efforts at trying to pin down the answer looked promising. In setting up an array of cameras, 12 in total, and photographing a galloping horse over and over again, it looked like Stanford's estimation of the horse leaping into the air was indeed correct. But in the mid 1870s, Moybridge didn't have the chance to perfect and 100% confirm this early suspicion because something else derailed his attention. In 1872, the same year that he took the job slash bet from Leland Stanford, things were on the up and up for Moybridge from a personal standpoint. He had met and fallen in love with a young woman named Flora Stone, who, at 21, was 22 years younger than Moybridge. Photography brought the two together, it seemed. Edward met the future Mrs. Moybridge when she was working doing photography retouching at another nearby studio. That year, they got married, but things didn't go so smoothly for the couple. Famously, Moybridge was a bit of an odd duck, a difficult person with a streak of anger and probably a lack of delicacy towards his new wife. So, the next year when the couple became acquainted with a new friend, the situation became even more complicated. In 1873, the Moybridges met a newly minted theater critic from the San Francisco Post, a former major in the British Army named Harry Larkins. From all accounts, he was the opposite of Moybridge. Where Moybridge was distant and strange, Larkins was outgoing and charming. Not a whole lot was known about Larkins' early life, but it appeared that he came from a wealthy and reputable family in England. His relations with his family, though, had grown estranged due to Harry's interest in living an adventurous, romantic life, seeking challenges not only in the British Army, with whom he served for six years in India, but also in the French service, too. He was a globetrotter who spent his family's wealth to fund his exploits. And after his military service concluded, he realized he had no real way to fund his living other than making do with a number of random jobs. He worked as a translator, a reporter, a circus manager, a map maker, and as when he met Flora, a theater critic. You can see that Larkins cut quite the figure and was a fascinating person to be around. And you can further imagine that comparing Larkins with Moybridge, her husband, was something that Flora Moybridge could not help but do. And in that comparison, her husband came out lacking. And so it is perhaps not a surprise to note that as Moybridge dug deeper into both his galloping horse studies, As well as traveling to take more photos of the American Northwest, his wife was at home, lonely and looking for a deeper connection with someone. That someone, naturally, became Harry Larkins. Over the course of the next year, Moybridge was away from home for much of the time, photographing everywhere from Alaska to Nebraska and all so many places in between. He occasionally made trips back home to San Francisco, and it was during one of these return visits that Flora announced she was pregnant. In April 1874, the couple welcomed their first child, a boy with the fascinating name of Florado Helios Moybridge. It was a happy time for the pair, surely, but one that did not last. At some point, Edward was rummaging through his wife's belongings when he stopped to admire a photograph of their young son. But when he flipped the photo over, he found two words scrawled on the back in his wife's handwriting. Little Harry, the note read. And with that discovery, everything changed suddenly for Moybridge. Was he not the true father of his son? Was Florado's dad actually Harry Larkins? Some sources note that during this time period, Moybridge confronted the lovers, and the situation came to blows between the two men. And several acquaintances of the famed photographer were even concerned that he, Moybridge, was so devastated as to consider suicide. Moybridge opted instead to exert control over his wife's life. In order to further separate Flora from Larkins, Moybridge sent his wife to visit relatives up in Portland, Oregon, thinking that the distance would be enough to shut down things entirely. But he may have forgotten a little thing called the U.S. Postal Service, because upon his wife's return to the Bay Area, he discovered letters sent between Harry and Flora that confirmed that the pair was still involved with one another. The photographer was livid. Filled with such rage that Flora apparently tipped off her lover to escape, and Larkins fled the city. But Edward Moybridge was quickly on his tail, and what happened next was such a major scandal that it was all over the newspapers. I'll let the San Francisco Bulletin's article from October 19, 1874, lead us through. The article, titled A Startling Tragedy Chevalier Harry Larkins Shot Dead by Edward J. Moybridge, the Photographer, the sequel to a scandalous intrigue. Unquote. Recent part as follows: quote, considerable sensation was created in the city yesterday morning by the receipt of intelligence from Calistoga of the deliberate killing of Major Harry Larkins of this city by Edward J. Moybridge, the well-known photographer. The cause leading to the act of murder was the discovery of convincing proof by Moybridge of the infidelity of his wife with Larkins, and immediately thereupon he set out to avenge his wrongs leaving the city in pursuit of Larkins on Saturday, knowing him to be in the vicinity of Calistoga, engaged in preparing maps of the mines in that locality. He reached Calistoga at eight o'clock in the evening, and without stopping for food or rest, he went in search of his intended victim with a horse and buggy. Larkins had returned from Pine Flat on Saturday evening and stopped at the Yellow Jacket Mine, 11 miles from Calistoga, intending to pass the night there. Thither Moybridge traced him, and reaching a spot at about 11 o'clock that night, he sent word to the major that he wanted to see him. Larkins was confronted by Moybridge, who, in the words of the terrible import, said, This is the reply to the letter you sent to my wife, and immediately discharged a revolver. The aim was well taken and deadly. Larkins had no opportunity to defend himself or to utter a word. He ran a few steps and fell a corpse with a bullet through his heart. Putting his pistol up, Moybridge surrendered himself to the superintendent of the mine and was forthwith conveyed to Calistoga, where he was given in charge to the authorities. Moybridge offered no further resistance and expressed his gratification upon learning that his victim was dead. Unquote. Fast-forwarding one year, Edward Moybridge's murder trial was in full force, and San Francisco was enraptured, just as they had been when learning about the sordid details of his wife's affair and her lover's subsequent murder. In 1875, at the start of the trial, Moybridge made an insanity plea, claiming that he wasn't in his right mind when he killed Larkins. At some point during the trial, he and his lawyers changed his defense to quote-unquote justifiable homicide, or killing someone for a very good reason. What is so telling about the late 19th century and about how women, especially wives, were looked upon is that this defense actually worked. Moybridge was acquitted of murder, with the jury determining that, yeah, it totally makes sense for you to kill someone if your wife is having an affair with him. Reasonable, right? And thus, Moybridge was free, even though he confessed to the killing and had turned himself in to the authorities quickly after Larkin's death. During the trial, Moybridge was unable to experiment with his newly-innovated motion picture techniques, so when the trial ended, he was ready to begin again and to confirm his studies once and for all for Leland Stanford. But first, he needed to change of pace and scenery, and so he moved to Central America for about nine months, photographing incredible landscapes of Panama, Guatemala, Costa Rica, and beyond. When he returned to the United States, he jumped into his old methods, working first in a studio in Palo Alto before moving to the University of Pennsylvania. His improvements in the late 1870s included not only that quick shutter speed that he had pioneered before his murder trial, but also speedier processing times for film emulsions. By 1878, under Leland Stanford's watchful gaze, Moybridge was able to repeat his previous experiments about that long-debated question about a horse's hooves. On June 15th of that year, the photographer made history at what was then called the Palo Alto Stock Farm, which is now part of the campus of Stanford University. Along a horse track there, Muybridge placed multiple large cameras, each with a shutter that would be triggered by a thread when someone, in this case a horse, touched it upon passing by. That day, Leland Stanford's horse, named Sally Gardner, galloped on by and click, click, click went the shutters of Muybridge glass plate cameras. Here, Finally, was a series of images that proved once and for all that horses in gallop do at specific times in their gait have all four hooves off the ground, effortlessly floating for a split second. This sequence of photographs was so revolutionary that not only did it solve that much debated popular question of the day, but it captured the public imagination. Muybridge's images were so fascinating that they were even published in Scientific American and other magazines of the day. Later, Muybridge copied his negatives onto silhouettes painted onto glass disks, which were housed in a circular device that when cranked by hand, would spin quickly in a circle. When viewed through a portal, the disks spun so quickly that it gave the effect of continuous motion. Sally Gardner perpetually galloping into eternity, or as long as your arm muscles could hold out. This machine, called a zoopraxiscope, is considered to be one of the first movie projectors the intermediary step between the still photograph and the films that we know and love today. And it's funny to think about how this experiment, the Stanford horse-trot debate, affected the development of motion pictures because the world's earliest film, or the first real movie ever, is practically a copy of Moybridge's images. This film, produced in 1888 by Louis Le Prince, a French artist, was called The Round Day Garden Scene, and is the first selection of films to show a horse galloping with a jockey on its back. And yes, in the surviving stills of Le Prince's film, you can indeed see the horse's hooves hovering gently off the ground. For me, this story is all about the what-could-have-been factor. What would have happened if Edward Moybridge was convicted of murdering his wife's lover, Harry Larkins? Stuck in jail for who knows how long, it's certain he would have not been able to innovate the same way he did upon his return from Central America, reuniting with Stanford and continuing his pop culture scientific experiments from the years prior. Possibly the question of whether or not a horse's hooves ever left the ground at all would have probably died out, the way that no one really thinks too much about whether or not the dress was blue and black or white and gold these days. Or maybe Leland Stanford would have found another photographer to take up his assignment. But even then, Moybridge's work with Stanford led directly to the invention of the zoopraxiscope, which begat the true motion picture 10 years later. And that is a big what-if. Would we have gotten there anyway? My answer is yes, probably. But who knows for sure? Who knows if Moybridge was this single history-changing person? So how different would history have been then? If Moybridge was found guilty of the crime he already confessed to committing. Thank you for listening to the Art Curious podcast. This episode was written, produced, and narrated by me, Jennifer Dassel, with additional research help by Joe Smalin. Our theme music is by Alex Davis at alexdavismusic.com. Our logo is by Dave Rainey at daverainydesign.com. And social media help is by Emily Crockett and Caroline Holler. Our production and editorial services are provided by Kabunki. Video, content, ideas. Learn more about how Kabunki can help you at k-a-b-o-o-n-k-i.com. Additional editing is by Hannah Roberts. The Art Curious Podcast is sponsored primarily by Anchorlight. Anchorlight is a creative space founded with the intent of fostering artists, designers, and craftspeople at varying stages of their development. Home to artist studios, residency opportunities, and exhibition space, Anchorlight encourages mentorship and the cross-pollination of skills among creatives in the triangle. Please visit AnchorLightRaleigh.com. The Art Curious Podcast is also fiscally sponsored by VAE Raleigh, a 501c3 nonprofit creativity incubator, and we rely on sponsors, advertisers, and donations to keep us going. Please consider giving to help us out, and thank you for your generosity you can still help out our show by giving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Because believe me, it really does help new listeners to tune in. For more details about our show, as well as how you can hire me for special events, please go to our website, artcuriouspodcast.com. We are also on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Art Curious Pod. Check back in two weeks as we end our season exploring the unexpected, the slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful in the true crime realm of art history.